special welcome uh, for me, and I think when the morning's over with you, will sense uh, from you as well, uh, a guest presenter, Rob Renfro, from, uh, he's the Director of Adult Discipleship in the Woodlands United Methodist Church just north of uh, Houston, Texas. He's a native Texan, and uh, you'll pick up on that, I think, as he speaks. Um, I came across, uh, I came, became acquainted with Rob uh, when I attended the Northeast uh, uh, Evangelical uh, Jurisdictional Meeting uh, down near Philadelphia uh, about a year and a half ago. And as I listened to him, I thought, wow, it would be a great privilege for us to, to have him come and uh, share some of the insights that he has that I feel are are so on target for things that we wrestle with in our close relationships and our personal relationships and our business and, and world interactions. Uh, and so we teamed up with a, a congregation down in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, he was with them and a group of pastors uh, yesterday all day and has chosen to be with us and will be speaking this afternoon Lest I forget, at the end of the service, because we've had a lot of people at the end of the first service all of a sudden say, whoa, I want to be there this afternoon and this evening. We want to be reasonably prepared. So when you leave, if there's sort of tug on your heart and you say, I think I better change my plans for the day if you, if you have any uh, and want to be here, uh, be sure to go to the Welcome Center and put your name on a list so that we're we're, in, you know, we're just adequately uh, prepared for that occasion. But uh, Rob's president and publisher of Good News, uh, a magazine and a, uh, a group of cohort, cohorts within our denomination that are really, you know, challenging pastors, leaders, and congregations, you know, to doctrinal integrity, really looking at the scriptures for all that they afford us in terms of you know, clear direction on our and the ordering of our lives together, and also spiritual renewal. And uh, as you listen, you know, you'll gain a sense why God has graciously positioned him to serve in that capacity. So before I welcome him up, last service I didn't do that, but let me just offer a short prayer. Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, bless Rob as he shares his mind and his heart and his spirit with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm so very happy, and I feel very privileged to be here with you. I've been looking forward to being with you for quite some time. I'm always glad to be where God is present and where God's at work, and that's very obvious here, both from this worship service and then from what I've heard about your church beforehand, now seeing for myself. Uh, I'm so grateful for your good work here in the name of Christ. I know that you're grateful for the way that the McBrides have invested themselves here over these decades and all that God has used them for. And it's important that there are churches like yours, uh, churches that are real examples of how great ministry can be done, uh, hope uh, for other Methodist churches that if we are faithful to what God calls us to be and we love people, uh, that God can reach out to all kinds of people and bring them together and bring them to himself. So I'm glad to be here and uh, glad to be with all of you. 
look forward to seeing hopefully many of you this afternoon as well. well. I want to talk with you and begin by looking at how John, the Apostle John, begins his description of what I call the beautiful life, the life of Jesus. And in the first verse of the first chapter of John, we read what may be at the same time the most simple and yet most uh, profound sentence ever written. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I have it on your notes there in Greek. That was the first sentence I learned in Greek. It comes from John's Gospel. John's Greek is pretty easy to read. And so that was the first sentence. But I want you to look at it. It's simple. It's elegant. It's beautiful. It's a magnificent verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John continues in his prologue to describe this beautiful life. In John 1.14, he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus came into the world, He came with grace and truth. Not one instead of the other, not one more than the other, but both together, grace and truth. And I believe that's one of the reasons that he had such a big impact on the people of his day, and one of the reasons that he continues to impact the lives of people in our time, 2,000 years later, both because he came with grace and truth. Now, grace, that's compassion for people. That's being better to people than they deserve. That's caring more about people even than you care about yourself. It's being able to put yourself in their place and understanding where they're coming from, what they're going through, and ministering right to the very heart of their need. Compassion for people. But it also says that Jesus came with a passion for truth. And that means speaking the truth that people need to hear even if possibly they don't want to hear it. It means being true to your principles. It means standing strong when the culture is going in a different direction, not backing down even if you have the sense that you may be crucified for speaking what you know to be true. And what we find is that Jesus did this magnificent job of combining both, compassion for people and passion for truth. It's not all that easy to pull off. To me, it's like walking on a tightrope trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and you have this balance bar and on one side there's compassion for people on the other side there's passion for truth. And if you ever let go of one side, you get weighed down on the other side and you begin to stumble and you fall off that tightrope and you don't live the way that Jesus lived. But I do believe this. If we as individuals are going to impact those around us, if we as local churches are going to impact our community, if we as a denomination are going to have any kind of impact in our nation, in our world, we're going to have to learn how to do this well, and that is combine grace and truth so that we might live lives that look like the life of Jesus. So this morning I want to talk with you about why we must be committed to both. This afternoon is going to be very different. I'm going to talk with you about why this culture doesn't make sense to you. I'm going to talk with you about why you feel like an alien and a stranger in your own land and how our culture has dealt with truth and why we are where we are and how we can respond to it. This morning, I simply want to talk with you about why we're committed to both, uh, compassion for people and passion for truth. I'm going to speak uh, maybe less about compassion for people, not because it's less important, but because Methodists just get that. That's just part of our DNA. 
We just know that we're supposed to care about people and help them. That's why probably in every community in this country, the leaders of the the soup kitchen, the thrift store, the community clinic, the mercy ministries, you're just going to find United Methodists there because that's who we are. We just know that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, So I may talk a little shorter about it, but not because it's less important, but just because that's natural to us. But why must we be committed to compassion? Well, the first reason, of course, is because Jesus commanded us to be. He said the second greatest commandment is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. He said do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he said this, by this will all men and women know that you're my disciples. What? That you got your doctrine right? That you stood up for your principles? That you wouldn't back down? Now, those of us who kind of gravitate towards truth, we'd like him to say that, but that's not what he said, is it? He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Some of you may recognize the name of uh, Francis Schaeffer. He said, there's nothing more ugly than an orthodoxy that's having your doctrine right. There's nothing more ugly than an orthodoxy without understanding or without compassion. See, having your truth right and fighting for them without love and grace, that doesn't make you a disciple. It just makes you ugly and mean. Um, That's not what we see in Jesus. I love this quote from Richard Needham. He says, the man who is brutally honest enjoys the brutality quite as much as the honesty, possibly more. Isn't that true? I'm just telling them what they need to hear. No, you're just telling them what you want to say. Just telling them for their own good. No, you're just telling them because it makes you feel good to say it. And we never see that kind of honesty, that kind of brutality in Jesus. We always see him showing compassion along with speaking the truth. Now, the second reason I would tell you is we have to be committed to compassion, and I have thought about this. I read it many years ago. I've thought about it and talked about it enough that I almost understand it. The truth is uh, spoken. If the truth is spoken without love, it's a lie. Now, I think what that verse is getting at is that God intends the truth to be a blessing in our life. The truth is always meant to build us up, not tear us down. And so when God gives us truth to share with others, It's never so we can stand above them and shake a finger in their face. It's always so we can stand beside them and put an arm around their shoulder. And so when God speaks truth into our lives and when we're asked to speak truth into the lives of others, it may be a difficult truth for them to hear. Uh, It may be hard, but the purpose is always to lift people up, to make people better. It's always to bring God's grace and help into their lives. And if we speak for any other reason, if instead of trying to improve someone's life or just simply speaking to prove our point, uh, then chances are what God intended to be a blessing becomes a curse in their life and it pushes them farther away from God. And in essence, it becomes something it was never intended to be. So the truth spoken without love becomes a lie. Now, the third reason we have to be committed to compassion, and you know this, is people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care, right? I mean, those of us who are truthers by nature, we may not like this, but it's true. Most people are not argued into the kingdom. Most people are not lectured into the kingdom. Most people are not outsmarted into the kingdom. Most people are loved into the kingdom, aren't they? 
I, when I was in college, I went to Rice University. Um, it had high standards for getting in. Occasionally, some of us slipped through. But it was a rather nerdy crowd at Rice University. Uh, they were all very, very bright, kind of lacking in social graces. That was the community there. And I was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and we had this wonderful strategy for bringing non-believers to faith in Christ. You want to hear what it was? Right outside the campus bookstore, we had a table that had Christian books on it. And as people came to the campus bookstore, we would try to sell them Christian books that they had absolutely no interest in reading. Does that sound like a good strategy? We weren't giving them away. We were expecting them to buy books that they didn't want to read. And when they didn't want to do that, then our next strategy was to get in a discussion slash debate slash argument with them where we really tried to do two things. One, prove them, prove to them the reality of Jesus, and second, prove to them that we were much smarter than they were. That, that was pretty much the strategy for bringing people to faith in Christ. It was not very effective. Uh, my first couple years at Rice, maybe one or two folks through that ministry came to know Christ. Our third year, we decided we're going to do something different. How are people going to know that we really belong to Jesus? How are people going to know that the Father sent the Son? It says because of love. So we spent a whole year just stressing small groups, getting to know each other, caring about each other, doing things together, loving each other, investing our lives into each other's lives, and, and inviting some non-believers to join us as we did things that were fun and that built community. Now, my senior year, the very first meeting that we had, was a Friday night, a little bit over 100 people there, and the worship was really powerful. I think I knew that, that once you create a community that loves each other, it creates a place for God and for the Holy Spirit to come in a powerful way. And I was leading the group that night, and this is the late 70s. It will help you understand some of the language here. And I said, look, we, we said that we're going to learn how to love each other, and we believe that that would be a witness to those who don't believe in Christ. And we believe that it would make a space for the Holy Spirit to come with power and and that people that didn't believe in Christ could experience the presence of God even before they knew what it was. And, and that's happened. It's here tonight. So I want, to, I want to encourage you to invite non-Christians to come. And as if on cue, this freshman that I'd never seen before just speaks right up. He says, uh, well, look, I'm a non-Christian. And I can tell you, man, there's a pretty groovy vibe in this place, okay? <laughs> Well, he became a Christian that year, and about a dozen other kids became Christians that year. Why? Because we invited them into a fellowship where they would receive love. When people know that you care about them, when people know that you love them, that you're going to walk through the uh, life with them, when they know that they're going to be accepted for who they are, their defenses drop. You don't get into arguments. You get into discussions. And hearts become open and they can believe truths that otherwise they might not be able to believe. People don't really care about all your smart answers, all the truth you possess, until they sense that you care about them. The people who listened best to Jesus, they were the sinners. They were the ones that everyone else looked down upon. Why did they listen to Jesus when he said, repent of your sins? Because when others put them down, he lifted them up. When others said, you deserve your illnesses, Jesus healed their diseases. When other people told them that they deserved God's judgment, Jesus told them that they were precious in the sight of the Father. 
And because they knew that he loved them, they were able to listen, even when he said, repent of your sins and get right with God. Now, the fourth reason that we need to be committed to compassion is simply because Jesus was, and he's our model. You know, the Christian life, we make it very complicated. The Christian life is basically becoming more like Jesus. And don't misunderstand this, but I don't care how much you read the Bible. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care how often you go to worship. If you're not becoming more like Jesus, you're not really growing the Christian life, are you? So the whole goal is to become more and more conformed to his image from the inside out, as the song says. And one of the things that we find about Jesus is that compassion was one of his primary motives in how he ministered to people. Now, the word compassion in Greek is very interesting. It was translated in the New Testament as he had compassion on them or he was moved with compassion. And the reason it's moved with compassion is because the word compassion has to do with a person's internal organs, your heart, your lungs, your liver, your kidneys. And compassion, the way it is in Greek, it's when those things tighten up and move. When you see someone in pain, you see someone hurting, you see someone struggling, and something deep within you tightens up because you care about that person. And over and over again, we see that phrase, moved by compassion. When Jesus saw a blind man who cried out for his sight, moved by compassion, Jesus healed him. And when he saw the masses who were without food, it says, moved by compassion, he fed them. When he saw a widow who was taking her only son to be buried... Moved by compassion, Jesus stopped the processional and he reached up and he touched the dead boy, brought him back to life, gave him to his mother. When a leper cried out, if you're willing, you can make me whole. Moved by compassion, Jesus did the unthinkable. He reached out and embraced the man and he healed him of his disease. What we find over and over again is that Jesus was moved by compassion. The goal of your life, the goal of my life, is to become more like Jesus. And what we love, how we think, what we do. And I can tell you, we're never going to become like Jesus unless compassion for the needy, the broken, the hurt, the lost, the last, the least, the looked over. Unless that becomes a big part of our lives. Now, I want to talk with you about why we must be committed to truth, and here's how I want to get there. I want to read a verse for you that shows you that really compassion for people and passion for truth are not opposite ends of the spectrum. I still like that illustration I gave you, but they're more like threads that create a beautiful fabric. Look with me, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. There's our phrase. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. Now, what I want you to see here is that when Jesus sees people like sheep without a shepherd, when he sees people, no one has taught them how to find green pastures. No one has taught them how to find still waters. No one has told them how to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. When Jesus saw people like that, the same compassion that caused him to heal a leper, to give sight to the blind, to feed the masses, to raise a dead boy, and giving back to his mother, the very same compassion caused him to do what? To speak truth into the lives of people who needed to hear it. Sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do 
is speak truth. Now, why must we be committed to truth? Well, this builds on what I just told you. Spiritual and emotional growth require truth. Spiritual and emotional growth, they require honesty with yourself about yourself. They require dealing with the truth. And so we must be committed to truth for ourselves and for others. Now, sometimes I wish I could and I wish you could read the New Testament for the very first time. You just don't have any preconceptions about what it's supposed to say or who Jesus is supposed to be. I'd like to give you the, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, said, look, these are the stories of Jesus. He's the most loving, most compassionate person you're ever going to encounter. Just read and, and look at this beautiful life, this loving life. And if you did, I think there'd be some times where you'd say, what the heck is going on here? Rob, I don't get this. You said this is a compassionate, loving guy. Look what he's doing. Let me give you just two examples. There's one guy, Jesus is walking through town. Everybody in town is out watching Jesus. And one guy, he has this problem in his family, and it's so bad. Imagine what it would have to be like for you that you'd yell out your family problems in front of everybody. And this is what the guy does. He he cries out, uh, Rabbi, make my brother share the inheritance with me. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking this guy's in pain. This guy's in trouble. Uh, so the, probably the first thing I do, I just like put on my empathy cap, you know. I said, oh, man, I got a brother. I know, I know what a pain they can be. I, I relate to you, okay. Or maybe, you know, I put on my counselor cap. Hey, man, it sounds like you're in a lot of pain. Uh, why don't you get together with me? Let's see if we can't process this and get you to a better place. Or I would put on my mediator cap. And I said, hey, it doesn't have to be win-lose. Get your brother. I bet I can get you together. I bet we could come up with win-win. That's what I would do because I'm a caring, compassionate person, right? What does Jesus do? He pulls out the booyah bat and goes right upside the guy's head with it. That's what he does. You remember his answer? Master, make my brother share the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, Beware of greed in all its forms. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Look, buddy, I don't care how much money you die with in your bank account. If in your heart there's greed, there's anger, there's bitterness, you're going to die a bankrupt man. And that's what's in your heart right now. Booyah! Right there in front of everybody. Wow. Wow. And here's one, the guy that's been by the pool for 38 years, paralyzed. And Jesus walks up and first question says, uh, do you want to get well? Which you can think is like the craziest question in all the Bible, right? Until you realize some sick folk don't want to get well. But he says, do you want to get well? And the guy says, well, you know, I've been waiting my turn. The water gets stirred up and... Other people step in over, and I'm never the first one in, and I don't know if it'll ever. And Jesus, I think, just says, good grief. Just get up. Get your mat. Get out of here, please. You're killing me. And so the guy gets up, and he goes. Okay, first day in 38 years, he's been on his good legs. He's walking around. He goes to the temple. He's thanking God. Jesus shows up. Jesus runs him down. Same day. What does Jesus say? How's the first day of the rest of your life going, huh, buddy? Doesn't do that. Say, hey, say it with me. God is good all the time, all the time. Doesn't do that. Does he say, how are the new pegs doing? They feel, feel good? 
You need adjustment. Need a second touch? Goes, I will do a second touch on you. Just like that. He doesn't say that. Remember what he says to this poor guy? See, you're well now. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. You think you've had it bad for the past 38 years? Get your life right. That's going to be a day in the park, man. This is like the most compassionate, loving person who has ever lived. And he says these things. Why? On your notes, I have, why did Jesus speak difficult truths in the lives of people? Because people need the truth. And why did he at times speak truth so straightforwardly? Because people will do all they can to avoid the truth they need. Herbert Agar said, the truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. Isn't it when somebody comes and says to you, um, do you want the truth or do you want me to lie to you and make you feel better? Oh, give me the lie, man. There's no, no question about that. I just want to feel better. T.S. Eliot, humankind cannot bear very much reality. So we try to escape it. The truth we need to hear is the truth that we often run away from. And Jesus spoke truth to people so they could get better. Mark 1.15, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Repent means get honest about where you are and where you're headed and where you're wrong. Turn around. I was the pastor at First Methodist Church in Atlanta, Texas. You ever heard of Atlanta, Texas? There's seven Atlantas in the United States. Atlanta, Texas is the second biggest. They say there's one bigger in the southeast someplace. But Atlanta, Texas is the second biggest. It's a town of about 6,000 people. And as a young pastor, when I went there, I told my secretary, I said, give me the names of everybody who's shut in. So I'm going to visit all the shut-ins in the first two weeks. Now, this is a smart thing to do when you're a new pastor and you go to a small town because, uh, one, your schedule is going to get really busy after you've been there a while. So this is kind of a start-up time, and you have some time as you're trying to figure out exactly what you need to do. Secondly, some of these people you're going to bury. It'd be good to know them. And thirdly, you're going to mess up while you're the pastor there. And it really helps if when you mess up, the people that you mess up with think, well, at least he visited my grandmother, and she shut in, so I'll give him a pass. We all need it, and that's a good way to buy a little grace. I'll go visit somebody's grandmama. So I went out, and I visited all the shut-ins in two weeks. I will tell you this. It is amazing how many people are shut in on Sunday morning who are not home on Monday morning when you go by to visit them. It's just really incredible how that works. But I went by and I visited everyone I could. And then after I'd been there three weeks, my secretary says, Rob, says, uh, Annie Mae called and she's mad at you. I said, wait a second. I said, One, why is somebody calling that I don't know? And secondly, why is someone I don't know mad at me? I said, well, she's shut in and you haven't been by to visit her. I said, did you put her name on my list? She said, no. I said, Dean, I told you to put every shut-in on my list. Why didn't you put her name on my list? She said, well, she's going to call every three weeks and be mad you haven't seen her. So I thought, why waste the first visit? Okay? That's a good secretary right there. So I went by, and Annie Mae was a mess, man. 
She's 80 years old. She lived by herself, never been married, and everything was wrong with everything. She would, the, the regular list as we'd go through her life, every time I'd visit her, we'd talk about how bad things had been when she was young, how bad her jobs had been. She'd talk about how bad Atlanta, Texas was. She'd find something bad to say about the church. Just, and then she'd always end up with this. She'd been a member of the women's Sunday school class. They were, the name of the class was the whatsoevers. That was the name of the women's Sunday school class. I, I want to think it was whatsoever you do, do it as unto the Lord, not whatsoever. So she was a member of that class. And she said, and I don't know why those whatsoevers don't come by and visit me. They drive right by my house. I see them. They go up and they see Miss Jocelyn. They go right past me the other direction. They go up and see Miss Dalrymple. I don't know why they don't come by and see me. Well, eventually I asked them. They said, Rob, we just couldn't take it anymore. All she does is complain about everything. We bring flowers. She yells at us, tells us she's allergic, leave them out there. And just finally, we thought, we're not doing any good. We're just not going anymore. Well, I did a pretty good job of seeing her regularly, you know, whenever she'd call and complain that I hadn't seen her. So I would go by and see her pretty regularly. It was the same old litany, everything wrong with everything. Oh, I don't know why those whatsoever's, they don't come by and see me. They go over to see Miss Jolly, go see Miss Donald. And so finally, after I'd seen her many times, she went through the litany. Why those whatsoever's don't come see me? Jocelyn, Dalrymple, why don't they come and see me? And I heard a voice say, I think I know why. Now, since her lips hadn't moved, and since I was the only one in the house other than she, I was convinced that maybe I had said those words. And that was confirmed when she looked at me and she said, you know why? I said, uh, yes, Annie Mae, I think I know why they don't come by and visit you. She said, why? I said, I'm not going to tell you. And she said, no, I want to know why. I said, I'm not going to tell you unless you really want to know why. And she said, I really want to know why. And I said, well, Annie Mae, the reason that those whatsoevers don't come by and see you is because you're a mean old cranky lady and nobody can stand being around you, that's why. <laughs> and then I stretched the truth a little bit. I said, now I like you. What? Okay. <laughs> Now, I like you, but the truth is you're a mean old cranky lady and nobody can stand being around you. Eighty years old, here's what she said. Brother Rob, can you help me? Mm-hmm. You know what I wish? I wish someone had loved her enough when she was 20 years old to put an arm around her and say, Annie Mae, now I like you, but let me tell you something, sweetheart. You're negative about everything and everybody. And that's going to have consequences in your life. You're going to miss out on so many of life's good gifts that God's going to put right before you. And you're going to miss so many of them. Um, and before you're through, you're going to push everybody out of your life. Think about if this is really the way you want to go. Now, if someone had loved her enough to speak the truth she needed to hear... Just maybe, just maybe some man might have fallen in love with her. Just maybe there would have been one night when she didn't have to go to bed all by herself and wonder why she was alone. Uh, just maybe on Mother's Day, she would have gotten a card or a phone call. Just maybe on Thanksgiving... Uh, 
the little child would have run into her apartment and jumped on her lap and kissed her face and said, I love you, Grandma. Um, People need truth. They need it given graciously. But people need truth if they're going to get better. What did Jesus say? It is the truth that sets us free. I've needed people to speak truth to me, and it's been hard for them to do it sometimes because they knew I didn't want to hear it. But I count those people as my best friends. I count those people as the people who have loved me most. People need the truth. Look at this uh, next uh, reason. I'm going to jump down to number three. A lie unchallenged often becomes accepted as the truth. That's one reason we have to be committed to truth and speaking the truth because a lie, if it's put out there and it's left unchallenged, just everybody begins to believe it's true. Uh, dictators count on that. Vladimir Lenin said a lie told often enough becomes the truth. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? See, all it takes is somebody to say a little something and nobody says, I don't think that's right. And somebody repeats it and then it's spread around. Pretty soon everybody's saying it and then it's just, oh, well, everybody knows it. It's on the news. Everybody believes that. All intelligent people believe that, right? Here's some lies in our culture and in the church that uh, concern me. You know, uh, one is the more stuff you have, the better the life you'll have. That's a great American lie, the materialistic lie. It's one that we buy into often. It's just not true. Not anything like what Jesus taught. Uh, Another lie is, and this has come back, this is being purported out, there is no hell. I wish to God I could believe that. I can't because the one who spoke the most about heaven that I trust in also spoke the most about hell. Um, Jesus is just one of many ways to God. Uh, Everybody who's gay is just born gay, just made that way. When you hear that, just ask someone, say, so what peer-reviewed study have you read that shows that? Oh, you haven't? Well, then how do you know that's the case? Well, people say that. People believe, everybody knows that. Well, no, no scientist, no independent scientist knows that because there's no study that shows that. Be careful when you make big statements that you can back it up. Um... Good deeds will get you to heaven. This one, this one shocked me. I guess it did. It didn't. It came out of Methodist literature, so nothing in Methodist literature really shocks me. Uh, but this was from the book of Romans, the disciple Bible study. There it is. They've got some gal, some professor writing about the book of Romans, and it's, well, just as long as your conscience tells you you're doing fine. She picks up a little something, first couple of chapters of Romans. I mean, book of Romans. Good deeds will save you. All have sinned. All have fallen short. There's none who is righteous. No, not one. Book of Romans. Um, But things are said, and no one speaks up against it. Uh, John Donne wrote, no man is an island entire of itself. And what he's not saying is that we need to be connected to people. He's saying we are connected to people. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for you. When beauty dies in one part of humanity, it dies in all of us to a degree. When truth dies in one part of humanity and the lie begins to replace it, it affects all of us. We're connected. We're part of a social fabric. We're part of a continent, a main. And What reverberates here passes all the way through, and then we begin to think things and believe things, and we don't even know why. 
But just everybody does. There's a story of a a Jewish man centuries ago who went to a Jewish town and discovered that it was just a place of wickedness. And so the old man went up and down the streets of this town crying out, men and women of this evil town, turn from your wicked ways. What you're doing is displeasing God. And at first the people ignored him. He continued to yell out and then they began to laugh at him. He continued to call out and then they began to mistreat him. And finally a young boy came to him and said, Why do you keep calling out? Turn from your wicked ways. What you're doing is displeasing God. Can't you see it's doing no good? And the man said, At first I yelled out thinking I would change them. But now I yell out. So they won't change me. So why must we be people of the truth who speak the truth and proclaim the truth who are unashamed of the truth? So we'll remember what's true. So our children will know what's true. So those around us who are looking for truth will at least be able to hear it and know that there's another way. Let me look at this last point with you quickly. And that is... Truth is an essential weapon in our arsenal against evil. Um, Now, President Reagan is uh, often uh, given credit for bringing down the Soviet Union. But the dynamic that brought down the evil empire was in place long before Reagan came to the forefront. Uh, Men like Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, dissidents intellectuals had begun sowing the seeds that would lead to the demise of the Soviet Union. When uh, Solzhenitsyn was given the opportunity, the honor of speaking at the Lazarev Institute in 1966, people thought that he would read from one of his novels, but instead he used it as an opportunity to issue a blistering attack against the KGB and the censorship that it enforced. And Solzhenitsyn later wrote about that night, he said, my words scorched the air like gunpowder. How those people wanted to hear the truth. God, how they yearned for truth. Os Guinness wrote about him and others. He said, they saw there were only two ways to bring down the mighty Soviet tyranny. One was to trump Soviet force physically which was impossible for a tiny handful of dissidents. The other was to counter physical force with morals, staking their stand on the conviction that truth would outweigh lies and the whole machinery of propaganda, deception, and terror. They chose the latter, and the unthinkable happened. They won. There's power in the truth. There's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. And even in our culture and even in our time, there is power in the gospel and there is power in the truth. And God, if we will speak it and be committed to it, God can perform miracles in the lives of people. And I still believe if we do it right, God can work again in our culture. Solzhenitsyn said, one word of truth outweighs the world. I believe that. I believe that truth is greater than lies. I believe that light is greater than darkness. I believe that goodness is greater than evil. If we will hold on to these things and not be ashamed of who Christ has called us to be. Solzhenitsyn, I have that one last quote for you. He said, let the lie come into the world, even dominate the world. 
but not through me. Not through me. Not through you. Not through this church. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the truth that you have revealed in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it is a gracious and compassionate truth. And we pray the compassion and the truth of the gospel would fill our hearts. That we might go out into this world and be lights to those who are in darkness. That we might be love to those who are in pain. That we might be a way for people who are trying to discover how to find you. Lord, continue to bless this church and these people and use them for great things. Uh, We thank you for all that's been done here in your name. We thank you for what's going to be done. And we believe that the best days are yet to come in Christ's name. Amen.